My next guest is a friend of mine, Marjan Mogadam. She is a digital artist for many years and has recently started working in the NFT world. And uh, she's an artist animator who lives and works in New York City. She works primarily with 3D animation and sculpture and installation for the screen, mixed reality, AR and VR. Her work has been widely exhibited at international museums, galleries, and festivals. So here's my conversation with Marjan. This is the White Hot Magazine Art World Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Becker. How's it going, Marjan? Good, good. I uh, I just uh, made it upstate to to the Adirondacks late last night, and I'm here for the weekend. So uh, it's a working, you know, it's a working trip up, trip upstate. But mm-hmm. I'm happy to be here. What have you been up to lately? Well, obviously a lot. <laughs> um, I I I entered the crypto art space and the NFT space uh, last summer on Super Rare. So. You know, I've had several drops uh, since and pretty much currently sold out. And actually a lot of the work is also already sold out into uh, the secondary market. Um, and uh, so what I'm doing right now is preparing lots of additional um, drops for different NFT platforms, including Institute, which is the world's first uh, art world led platform for NFTs from the unit London and they're going to be dropping the NFTs in July in a show curated by Kenny Schachter and uh, it's also going to have an exhibition at their um, Mayfair London space and uh, I will be having a solo show at uh, Mokda Museum of Contemporary Art uh, uh, curated by Filippo Lorenzen. Um, June 1st is the opening and that's going to be in Decentraland. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm also going to have, I'm also going to be in the world's first museum exhibition of the history of NFTs called uh, Proof of Art, curated by Jesse Damiani at the Photo and Media Art Museum at Linz Francisco Carillinum in Linz, Austria. And that show is actually going to be an IRL uh, museum exhibition and also a virtual exhibition at the same time in crypto voxels. And just and and just to add to that, I'm still I'm still doing non NFT art. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. actually something I'm working on right now is uh, a commission for uh, the UK. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing basically um, AR art and uh, physical sculpture from one of my figures uh, as permanent art for Hillsborough Castle, um, you know, sculpture park. Um, and that's uh, part of Hillsborough Castle complex in uh, Northern Ireland. Hmm. And uh, I'm also completing an AR project for the Helium app, uh, which is gonna be a very interesting project. Uh, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it uses brainwaves and biofeedback as input for interactivity. So that's kind of like, that's the, that's, that's the list of all the things I'm working on right now. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's quite the schedule. Yes, I know. That's why I'm so happy to, to have made it up here because I literally have not mm-hmm. had a day off in four weeks, but mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you, um, you, you do 
you've been doing digital work way before any of the NFT stuff started happening. Yes. Have you always been a mostly digital? Yes, actually, um, you know, I, uh, I, my first exhibited uh, computer animation was in 1984, and it was done on a Commodore 64. It's actually going to be in the uh, Mukta exhibition. And I, and, and in the late 80s, I did tons of work on the old Amiga computer and exhibited it, and was actually in the first major uh, Soho gallery exhibition of uh, computer art called Synesthesia, which was curated by Ronnie Catron in 1995 at Mary Anthony Galleries in Soho. Mm -hmm. So I do have a long history with uh, computer art. And I was also the featured artist for the launch of New York's first commercial internet gallery, .com Gallery, an international forum for the digital arts, which was sponsored by Prodigy Inc., the number two internet company back then mm. in 1996. So yeah, I've, I've sort of had a long history with computer art and, and actually it's what I studied it's in school as well. I, my first paint program was on VAX supercomputers, so, mm. <laughs> which were used at that time for missile guidance control systems. Um, and there were like all these warnings slapped on the cases that you, know, you, you would go to prison for life if you, mm. opened the, if, if you opened the cover and looked at what was inside. Mm. It was like a joke, but... Um, mm. The missile guidance control systems were basically what you needed to use uh, images, which was the mm. first uh, paint program from Alvy Ray Smith mm. back in 1979. Uh, I was a student then at New York Institute of Technology. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it just, you have such a long history and such a current uh, barrage of projects going on. You, it just must be exhausting. Or do you find it energizing? Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's interesting because uh, uh, the, the thing that energizes me is what I suspect energizes many other people, which is tons of caffeine. Mm. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, on, on a lot of levels, I have for reasons that I don't quite understand, um, you know, a very uh, real attraction to working with the technology. I, I, I feel as if it's like a puzzle for me on the one hand mm -hmm. uh, that keeps me very occupied. And on the other hand, the artistic work that I do uh, with the technology has always been so informed by my personal experience. And, 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 I, and I take a very gestural and, and sort of stream of consciousness, uh, almost jazz-like approach to what I do. So yeah. I'm, I'm in total bliss when I'm doing it. I mean, you know, when I get to that sort of place of creative flow, uh, I, I think that's like the only time I feel. Uh, do you do anything like meditation or yoga or anything like that? Yes, I do. I, I actually start my day. Uh, my rules are like, <laughs> I have to start my day by basically, this is the rule, not touching a phone, a laptop, an iPad, or my workstation. That's like, I, every Until when? I, I, I break the rule because the deadline. No, but are like how, when, how, like when you wake up and you don't touch any of those no device, no electronics. Right, but when do you touch? I them? usually wake up at 8 a.m., um, no electronics, no nothing. And I do a little reading from, you know, inspirational books. Sometimes they read philosophy, sometimes they read uh, metaphysical books. And I'm not a huge fan no, of- but when do you when do you touch the iPhone? When do you touch the laptop? After my meditation. So I, I wake up, I do a reading, I do my meditation. 
And so sometime around 845 is when I touch the devices. So you don't touch any devices for 45 minutes. No, I have to huh. kind of do that morning. Um, you know, uh, the, I find that devices can sometimes make us very scatterbrained. Right. And I think when you start the day with that type of focus, I generally speaking have much better focus for the rest of the day as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I sometimes try to count the number of times I scroll, see how few times I can scroll. But yeah, screen time is an issue for everybody right now. Definitely. Yeah, no, and I spend so much time on the screen and have for so much of my life. And, I, and I'm, I'm on social media all the time. So without, uh, without making a conscious decision to do things to uh, increase focus and concentration, it's, it would be a disaster. I think one other thing that I do is I read physical books before uh, bed at night. And uh, on the recommendation of, of, of a talk I heard on NPR. Not on, not on a Kindle, you're just actually holding No, it has book. to be a physical book. No electronic devices. And what, what is the explanation for that? Well, here's an interesting idea. I was listening to a talk on NPR a couple of years ago about uh, you know how our brains are just being completely rewired for multitasking and we're kind of losing our ability to focus and concentrate. And I, and I totally agreed with that. And so the neurologists were like offering a list of activities that could increase uh, focus and concentration. And one of them was do one thing at a time, <laughs> which I thought was, you know, I try to do that, you know, because it's sometimes hard. I feel like I have to multitask all the time. But their other recommendation was to read novels. Um, and the idea is to sustain a narrative over an extended period of time. And when you're reading a physical book, uh, and not using devices, it allows you to be more present to physical mm -hmm. sensations and uh, the physical experience. And um, and you're reading. So you're re what are you reading? Do robots dream of electric sheep? Is <laughs> no, but I just finished uh, it, all one thousand pages of Neil Stevenson's Seven Eves. Ah <laughs> uh, yes, Did, which was he, a part. He had a read. couple of books. There was one called Snow Crash that was. Yeah, really I, I read Snow Crash when it came out in the nineties. But there uh, was this person that I knew in the nineteen nineties who was really into Snow Crash. Mm -hmm. and had a lot of money and claimed that his fortune was as a result of reading Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash. Well, I think a lot of early internet people were very influenced by Snow Crash. Mm. And, and I think that really fueled a lot of the internet 1.0 kind of era of which I was a member because, I mean, I was doing the artwork on the internet, but I was also working for a lot of the Silicon Alley mm. uh, companies. And actually, the uh, the head immersive installation, the box which I did at uh, at a Soho gallery, went straight to uh, Internet pioneer Josh Harris's offices, CEO office at Jupiter Communications. Oh yeah. And you know, back then it was like weird because you know you had all these companies on Lower Broadway, you know, mm. a couple of blocks from all the galleries. Mm. And then on the other side, I lived in Tribeca. You had that little stretch on Hudson, which was right. you know Avalanche, Michael Block's Avalanche, and. Uh, SenseNet was another company mm -hmm. I worked with. All a lot of uh, a lot of the early advertising and music model of the mm -hmm. internet was that lower stretch of Hudson. You know, uh, Josh Harris is another episode on the same this podcast. Oh, awesome, awesome! And he actually phoned me yesterday. Cool. I hadn't talked to him in a while. He's a whole subject. 
Yeah, you know, I had this head immersive installation with my computer generated fractal animations inside that uh, that Josh, I remember Josh, first, before Josh got that for his office, he was like, I want this at Internet Expo at Javits, which was like the first Internet Expo at Javits. Right. And I'm like, what do you mean? You want an art installation at the, at the Jupiter Communications booth? And he was like, yeah, because the box sort of... It, it, as far as he was concerned, captured everybody's vision of the metaverse based on Snow Crash and the sort of coming transference of humanity to, uh, right. you know, uh, the metaverse, etc. So let, I'll be honest with you, I, I didn't get around to reading Snow Crash or any Neil Stevenson. Can you explain to me and the people listening what Snow Crash is about? Like summarize it. Well, I I would contextualize it this way. That you know, first wave cybernetics was, uh, you know, Gibson's Neuromancer trilogy, which was all about jacking in, and I think what Stevenson did with second wave cybernetics with Snow Crash in the 1990s, is that he he sort of depicted a world that had more elements of, um, you know, the the political situation in the world at that time was a much bigger uh, part of uh, meta, uh, uh, Snow Crash. S uh, Snow Crash had this whole sort of running terrorism thing happening in the background, for instance, of uh, the metaverse, which, uh, you know, uh, the, the Gibson's uh, trilogy didn't really have. So I always have to say second wave uh, cybernetics, uh, cyberpunk was a little bit different because it had that sort of political, multiracial uh, and the tensions between the rivalries. For instance, of the future America in Snow Crash is this completely libertarian world where the, the US government only exists in the Northeast and the rest of the country is uh, you know, a series of suburbs that you actually need passports to go into and the corporations run everything. And everybody lives in this virtual reality experience called the metaverse. And, you know, Stevenson sort of creates very interesting and compelling depictions of the metaverse. Like when you first uh, enter a metaverse, it's completely realistic and people are walking around with avatars. And while of course, many many people choose to be Barbies and many people choose to be Ken's, he does point out that some people are walking around like penises or mm. uh, some people walk around as weird creatures. So he really depicts visually uh, a very interesting um, metaverse where everybody gets to express themselves creatively. And then of course, hackers are a very big part of this world because they can facilitate um, you know, underground transactions, they can facilitate magical powers, uh, very much like Ready Player One. Um, so there's hints of the, the game world in, in the metaverse, uh, uh, Stevenson's uh, metaverse as well. Mm. Yeah, I'll have to read that. I, I didn't get past Catcher in the Rye so I have to expand my <laughs> actually I, I read part of Catcher in the Rye and I was like wow this is depressing I can't read this that that is a hard book to read I agree that is a hard book to read but metaverse is more fun and it, it, it was it's very 90s when I think back now uh it's very fun it's very cool it's very Stevenson um very brilliant you know um and uh it's it's a much more engaging read mm -hmm. Um, and so these pieces that you make, some of the people listening here haven't seen your work and we're on a podcast, so we can't show people images. Um, 
but we can talk about images. There was one that was like a figure and it was in a gallery and art fair. And I think it's like a real famous one of yours where there, it was like um, lab pink or like the flesh was kind of bubbling out in different directions. And yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of the style I work with. Yeah, well, the art hacks, what you're, what you're mentioning is one of my art hacks. And I started the art hacks in 2016 as a conceptual net art project by hacking my digital art into found and shot exhibition footage at art fairs initially. And then of course some galleries and museum shows as well. And um, so part of my intention was to of course redefine form for digital because at the time I felt like all the art that I look at is on Instagram, <laughs> you mm. know? And, and I even joked that like, you know, the, the, like the most important thing about an art, physical art show that I do is the documentation on Instagram, you know? And so it seemed like, why not just, you know, create work specifically uh, for exhibition footage on, on um, you know, social media. And then on the other hand, I wanted to radicalize curation, um, democratize the exhibition space, and also engage in a critical discourse that I felt was missing from the art fairs, et cetera. So that was a kind of like my intention. So I would uh, take my figures and other art that I had and I would visually hack them into these uh, art fairs as they were happening. And a lot of times um, I always say to hack is, is merely transgressive, but to do so with a critical discourse is transformational. So a lot of times my interventions were really correctives. Like for instance, in 2016, Gagosian did the big sort of landmark survey of a hundred years of a nude, you know, and mm -hmm. um, and I had like every major rock star of art in the last hundred years in it, but that show had uh, no non-binary and no digital nude. And so that's when I hacked my non-binary nude glitch into that exhibition. Um, and, uh, you know, at various other points, uh, I did a lot of pieces that were critiquing the over-financialization and commodification of art uh, via the art fair model and mm -hmm. art fair system. And right, uh, that figure piece, was kind of in an art fair. Yes, they were all in, in the art fairs, but they were visually hacked into the art fairs. Um, and, the, and the piece that I believe you're talking about is My Glitch Goddess of Art Basel 2018 mm -hmm. with Picasso and Wood, which then went viral on the internet. And I think aggregated, it was like around, uh, la the last calculation was about 18 million views on different art channels and um, on Instagram and Facebook. And um, that, and I guess those, so that was the basic explanation for the art hacks, but the figures themselves and my style of illustration, I mean, my, my style of figuration is, uh, is a kind of like an original and unique style of animation I have, uh, figuration and animation I have that I call chronometric sculpture, uh, which blends the ideals of uh, animation with that of sculpture and art. And uh, the glitch goddess in particular, she, she's an art historic intervention because she mm. resists and defies the idea that a female is a singular form. So the bubbling that you're talking about is her transformation from slender, heavy, um, you know, pregnant, old, young, glitched, stylized, abstract. And so all my figures are always these, multi these different states in flow and in flux through digital plasticity. Why, why does the figure kind of appear in the middle of the art fair? Because it's sort of an intervention figure, is that what you were Yes, saying? it's an intervention figure, yeah. It's, and what it's, is it, it's sort of intervening in the regular flow of the, of the art fair? Yeah, so, so for instance, for that particular hack, I saw the 
raw footage on Instagram and then I grabbed the footage and then I hacked my uh, art into it. And so I use the footage from the art fairs as the type of exhibition space. Um, actually, I think the, the, the premise for it, I mean, some people call it, you know, a type of graffiti and, I, and you know, I think that, that definitely there's an aspect of it. But um, I always bring up that, you know, in the 20th century, when a lot of artists were doing work after the old masters, like Picasso was doing, you know, a suite after Velasquez and uh, uh, de Kooning was doing entire suites after, you know, Netherlandish altarpieces, et cetera. Uh, Foucault came up with a really interesting explanation and title and term for what that kind of art was. And he called it art of the museum spaces. Like, in other words, you had to have something called museums showing art for artists to say, you know what, instead of painting portraits and landscapes, I'm going to, to do sort of work with the art that I see in a museum or engage it in a dialogue or, you know, bring it into my art practice and create an art piece with it. Mm -hmm. So the, I, and for me, it was a similar approach, but more like art of the social media spaces. Thanks. So it was about taking the same kind of museum concept, but like the raw footage from an art fair that people upload from their phones and sort of engaging in almost like a, improvisation with that footage because I do these hacks as the art fairs are happening so I only have three days from start to finish. So when you have a figure in it and it's animated and it's like basically a digital figure does it start as an actual figure or does is it kind of placed into the setting? No it's it's all 3D CG. Oh, okay because I thought that maybe somebody would be your model and then you would add CG. Uh, no it's 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 actually the technique that I use is I use uh, tracking software just like um, I guess the same I use the same tracking software as the television shows and feature films do uh, to track the 3D space in a, a piece of video let's say um, and you know, I use that track data to recreate the same space in a, in a 3D program. Um, so everything's tracked to the shot. And actually one of the, one of the, one of the, one of the sad things uh, that I should add about this technique is sometimes uh, there isn't enough time for me to track a particular shot well. So I have to, a lot of times I have to go with shots I can track in a very short period of time. And um, so, a lot of times the decisions as to what I hack and whatever is really determined by the time limit that I have and what, what I can get working uh, with, the, with the pipeline and the setup that I have. But pretty much everything is, think of it as a way of spatially reconstructing, um, you know, the, the, the space of a video and then putting the figures into that to match the lens and camera movement, uh, et cetera. So it takes quite a while to do a piece then. Yeah, it, I mean, I, I, I work pretty much nonstop, sometimes 12 hour days for the three or four days. I usually render overnight. Um, I use GPU rendering and I have, I, you know, I almost, almost always have good solid rendering workstations. So I can actually deliver the renders overnight, like while I sleep. <laughs> And if it's something I can't render overnight while I sleep, I basically don't do it. But um, yeah, so, but then I've done other hacks that I had more time on, um, like my Sarah Lucas hack or Bessette and Mary Boone and Glassish and Waxish, which was also another piece that went viral. Uh, those I had like uh, two to three weeks to work on. 
Um, mm -hmm. So when I, if I do a hack that's not necessarily uh, an art fair, I do spend more time on it. Do you ever do portraits of people just kind of sitting there? Portraits of them? Yeah. Um, I, I'm not that, that much of a fan of portraiture. You want to, you want to, you don't really want to connect with people directly. You want to have something. Yeah. I, I mean, I have obscured faces sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, I, especially like for instance, uh, uh, in an NFT that I sold and there was a pedestrian, I did have to sort of, um, you know, obscure their face. So in a, in a situation where I have to produce, uh, and, and, you know, I'm under pressure. A lot of collectors want the actual hacks that I've done, mm -hmm. but that, that sort of presents a lot of copyright issues. So and, uh, um, where do you think all of this is heading? Do you have any predictions for how this for is NFTs? All? Yeah. Well, you know, for me, it, it's, it's, it, this is the native form for uh, collecting my art, let's say. I mean, you know, for years I've tried to materialize digital art as prints or video art objects. Yeah. Uh, or sculpture. And, and it's, you know, and my experience with that is that a lot of the people who buy painting and sculpture <laughs> don't want to buy digital art. <laughs> and vice versa, maybe. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, it's always been a problem. I mean, and I'm sure you're aware of this, Noah, that if, if, if you really think about the last 40 years, um, you know, digital art has never received the same degree of respect and inclusion in the contemporary art world as, let's say, photography or even video, uh, video art or performance art. Right. And well, there's so, a lot of people that are very new to the NFT scene that are uh, selling for very large prices. Yes. And you have to also understand a lot of the collectors are also people who are in the digital world already. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there's instance, this kind of meeting of new artists and new collectors. Exactly. Like if you look at 4156 collection for us, uh, for instance, who's, who's mm -hmm. probably one of the biggest art collections. Well, you know him, right? <laughs> I did that clubhouse tour. Of that exactly. So, you know, 4156. But did you know that 4156 has actually done 3D himself? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. And he tweets about, you know, he's even shown some of his blender work. So, I mean, to me, this is like the this is like the ideal collector because he really understands what he's collecting. Right. And be, you know, before he bought my piece, he DM'd me and he asked me a lot of questions, and his questions were highly informed. Like he understood what he was did looking at. Did he buy at. your piece for five yes, he billion yes, dollars? He no. <laughs> he he bought it for uh 10 Ethereum, which you know was a was a decent amount right. of money. I That's think, what we know. sold uh our white hot magazine nft cover for yeah yeah it's nice price um, it's a nice price i agree yeah it's um it's not uh you know i mean it's not like i'm 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 not selling for a million like x copy but right. i was in the bbc documentary art goes digital about nfts right. in between people and x copy. i'm having kind of a cryptocentric week because <laughs> i curated a show on chainsaw that's an nft show that opened today Mm -hmm. And um, on the podcast, I had Kay Simmons, who was doing Simcoe Drops. And then I had Lindsay Howard, the head of uh, Foundation, yeah, for foundation. Community. Mm -hmm. And then yesterday, I had uh, IX Shells. The, um, she just sold an NFT for $2 million last week. Wow. She's wow. like the, the biggest selling, biggest price 
of uh, any female artist in the NFT thing, but wow. not uh, connecting with um, 40 years of history, maybe the product of 40 years of history. Um, I mean, everybody's doing what they're doing as a result of standing on the shoulders of giants, you know. No, I agree. Well, but but you but you know, I I feel like because I lived through the internet 1.0 era, and I think you might even recall the sort of wild scene downtown New York was back then with all the internet money, and and I I, I think I, because I saw that, I understood that like you can have uh, companies that you know are are just going through the roof in, in terms of the amount of investment and money. I mean, it's just like sums of money that bottle the mine, but mm -hmm. that, that they can all disappear in a very short period of time. Where do you think this money is coming from? I think a lot of it is, well, I mean, I'm not in a position to really say definitively because I don't know. I mean, I think mm -hmm. some people have said that they, they entered, uh, you know, I think some of the collectors who've uh, divulged their uh, finances, if you may, were people who entered the cryptocurrency investment world early. So these were people who bought a lot of, B you know, B Bitcoin when it was cheap or Ethereum when it was cheap, or, it, you know, people who bought um, crypto punks, like, mm. uh, you know, in large amounts. And so they were able to sell those and convert it into very high amounts of, you know, Ethereum. Mm. And they decided to basically reinvest that money in NFTs. So that's one of the uh, uh, stories. But if you they're may, not. That many they're not selling tear gas to police at the Mexican border, or anything. Well, I think that um, you know whether there's dark. I, I I think that a lot of people have uh, sort of brought up the idea that there's a lot of dark money in in NFTs and crypto art. But I don't. Ha the problem is I don't have um, the, the inside knowledge of that. Right. The, the collectors that I DM and talk to are young, generally speaking, young people in the tech industry, mm -hmm. in the tech world. They're tech savvy. They're young, and I don't get the impression these people are criminals. Well, know? there's there's just kind of there's kind of like a lot of there's a lot of anonymous people. Yes. Yes. I think anonymous people name. are. I agree. Yeah. And I'm I think like, most mm. of my collectors, they're pretty well-known people, mm -hmm. in, in the as collectors in the NFT space. So, you know, they're pretty. It, like everybody knows who they are. Well, some of the people I talk to are just AI robots. They don't. They're not. They don't actually exist. They're just computer-generated personalities. Right. Yeah, but you know, it's, it's it's the I think my collectors are people that or entities that are known. Like uh, my last piece went to the Flamingo DAO, and they're a DAO, so they're a group of investors, and they describe themselves as the Medici's of NFTs, and they have a pretty impressive collection. They're actually going to be part of the natively digital drop uh, at Sotheby's this June. Mm -hmm. Are you in so, one of I those mean, Sotheby's auctions? I'm sorry. Are you in the Sotheby's auction? No, I'm not. Yeah, no. Neither am I. Yeah, I, I think the Sotheby's uh, the Sotheby's or you drop don't like in, it. Well, no, the Sotheby's drop in June is a lot of OGs from 2018 to 2019, mm. and I'm not really part of that group because I entered NFTs in 2020. So I'm a uh, I'm quote unquote a later. <laughs> well, you're getting pretty prominent. I've known you for a while, and you're really starting to get prominent. Yeah, thank you. Yeah.
Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm trying. I think um, the, 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 the interesting part of it is almost uh, a lot of people in the NFT space know me and know my work from before I entered the mm. NFT space. So they know it mostly through the internet. Um, you know, one person was telling me, oh, I used to look at all, I used to look, love your stuff on Tumblr. And I was like, mm. my God, that, that was like well over 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so some of these people have known my work and have seen it on the internet for a very long time. And, um, mm -hmm. and yeah, I mean, a lot of people in the NFT space uh, do know uh, of my work going mm -hmm. back, you know, yeah. Sure. Oh, that's great. Well, you know, I'm so happy that we did a podcast and um, and it's great to talk to you again. I haven't talked to you in a year or so. Yeah. Um, and of course, nobody's really running into anybody over the last year. So <laughs> it's great to great to have you on the podcast. And I'll uh, I have some other questions for you. So let's connect over the next day or so. Awesome. Well, it was a pleasure doing this, and uh, definitely let's connect. Okay. Congrats and on all your you. successes. <laughs> you all you will have to come to the to the vr shows then <laughs> definitely yeah definitely okay we'll talk to you soon okay great take care take care bye-bye bye. if you like contemporary art check out whitehotmagazine.com for the best art in the world also follow noah becker on Instagram at New York Becker. See you around the art world.